Welcome to the Harbor Center for International Development's Beyond COVID podcast. This podcast is a series of conversations with CID faculty experts on various key dimensions of COVID response and recovery. Our goal with these conversations and with CID's Beyond COVID Research Initiative is to make use of lessons learned and capitalize on emergent innovations sparked by the pandemic in order to address losses and reimagine global development in the post-COVID era. My name is Devagna Rana. I'm an international student from India and a first year student at Harvard College studying economics. I am passionate about exploring the intersection between economic development, social change, and youth empowerment, especially in the context of countries in the global south. This week, we are joined by Asim I. Khwaja, Director of the Center for International Development and Professor of International Finance and Development at Harvard Kennedy School. I'm sitting down with Asim on October 19th, 2021 to discuss building resilient education systems. Asim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, I'm glad to be here. Asim, in your research, you shift the focus beyond specific inputs such as textbooks and teacher training, instead take a comprehensive approach to examining education ecosystem in order to improve educational quality. You also emphasize the importance of long-term engagement to examine how to catalyze innovation education and improve learning outcomes. Can you share with our listeners a bit more detail on some of your research projects and also why you think this approach to improve education systems is important? Great, Devangana, thank you for that question. Um, so you're right, in many ways, when I think of my own research, and this is a lot of this is in collaboration with two of my colleagues, uh, Jishnu Das at Georgetown and Tahir Indrabi at Pomona. One of the things our approach is really this approach of kind of empowering the individuals we work with. And so when you think of, say, in a typical education project, the parents and students and teachers and school administrators and our kind of approach is rather than us coming in and saying, look, we think you need a textbook or a better curriculum. That, that's a valid approach that can easily. There's a lot of great research which is done like that. Our approach is somewhat different. Our approach is rather than kind of uh, make a judgment call as a researcher and what that missing input is, create the conditions such that those individuals can actually choose the right inputs which work for them. And you know that's easier said than done because sometimes those constraints are, are like financial constraints. I can't afford those right inputs. Sometimes those constraints are actually knowledge constraints. I don't quite know what those right inputs are myself. And so, the way we think about it is if you think of all these actors trying hopefully to produce better education for children, you first start by asking what is the friction those actors are facing in making that decision? Is that a financial friction? Is that informational friction? Is that some other, maybe a labor market friction? Is that an organizational friction? And so if we can identify that friction, our kind of, and that's our task as researchers, identify what we think is that friction and then try and alleviate that friction and then, then let those individuals make the choices that we think are gonna to lead to better outcomes for, 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 for the children. And so just to give you one or two examples of this approach, the one example would be information as a friction. And so we have this study where we gave report cards to parents in, in Pakistan, and you know it was done as a randomized controlled trial to see the impact and the causal kind of impact of what we were doing. So in say half the villages we, we selected randomly, we gave parents report cards and children report cards about how different schools were doing. And the other half, the control group, we didn't. And then over the next year or two years, we followed them 
to see what is the impact of giving that information. And what we find is indeed consistent with this, this approach I mentioned on frictions, that when we provide parents information on what good schools are doing and who are the good schools, we got both improvements in average quality of schools, but also drops in, 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 in fees being charged. So essentially we enhanced competition in those places where we gave this information and that led to kind of better outcomes for parents. And in fact, that study we're now following up several years later. And even though we gave that information once, we're finding long-term effects of that intervention. There's another project where schools were financially constrained. And so we gave cash grants to schools. And again, in a similar way, we find when we give kind of reduce that financial friction, we get good outcomes. Thank you so much for that insightful answer. I'm particularly interested in how you pivoted your research during COVID. It's a good question. You know, in an interesting way, surprisingly for the education work, not as much. Look, at some level, all of us who are working obviously in the field, we couldn't do field work in the same way. It was not safe for us to be interviewing parents, not safe for them, not safe for our surveyors. And so that part of the work obviously gets affected. But since a lot of, by the time kind of COVID was hitting, we had started moving anywhere towards a lot of like online kind of tools and digital interfaces, not because we preempted COVID, but simply because we were thinking about ways to use technology to scale up things better, right? So, you know, you could deliver things in person, that's always costly. If you could use technology, it becomes a lot more affordable. So we were kind of anyways exploring those ideas, sort of ed tech, if you will. And when COVID came along, and so that just made it necessary to have that approach. So I would say, you know, yes, to some extent we were affected, but I think intellectually where we were headed is where COVID kind of forced us to be, which is this world of kind of more online tech-driven kind of education. And that's a, that's a very interesting area and something we're beginning to just explore. And I was wondering how the pandemic influenced the quality of primary education in the countries that your research team is working in. Yeah, so obviously this is kind of not just where my research teams are working. And I think this I've experienced both as a researcher and also as a parent who has three children who go to school. Look, for sure, one of the biggest shocks of the pandemic, aside from clearly the health shock, is the educational shock. In, in, in poorer countries, in poorer places, in, uh, amongst poor people in rich countries, there is a massive loss of just educational opportunities. You know, schools were shut down. Even when schools were kind of open, it was kind of online education, which uh, not everyone, even though I said that's a direction we're pursuing, not everyone has access to the bandwidth, to the devices. And so there's, a, there's both a, a shock on everyone and a shock which has, I think, exacerbated inequalities and inequalities inequities across people. And there is reason to suspect that this shock could have profound implications on child learning. The comparable thing we have is a literature called summer learning loss, which is during summer vacation, students don't come back. They, they lose some of the knowledge they had acquired before the vacation. And now obviously they may have gained other kinds of knowledge, but from the kind of subjects they were taught. And so we know already that that, that break causes disruption in learning. Now imagine that not just being for a couple of months, but for like almost two years in some cases, or, or eventually it might, well, it's a year and a half, but it may end up being two years for many people. And that's a huge loss. And it's something we're just beginning to examine to see what is the severity of that loss and also how do we mitigate it? How long do you think it will take developing countries such as India and Pakistan to fully provide equitable digital access in primary and secondary schooling? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And it's not just a question, obviously, for India and Pakistan and developing countries in general. Honestly, it's a question you can also ask of developed countries. In developed countries, like I said, it shows up in a different way. It shows up for uh, minority communities, more marginalized communities. I don't know. It's a tough question. If you ask me, that, can I predict when? I don't have a good answer to that. But if you ask me, do we have the impetus for it? That's what I'm more worried about. And I don't think we fully do. I don't think there is a consensus to say bandwidth is like a, like a living right. You know what I mean? Like, is there a universal access? Uh, you know, is, is one of the new development goals going to be free bandwidth for people? I would, you know, if I wanted to make a more provocative bold statement, I would say yes. I would say, given how much of the world is turning digital, I would love to see a world where just like you have access to basic education and basic health, almost everyone in the world has access to basic bandwidth. And then devices can follow, right? And in fact, a lot of the work we do, people often have devices, except they just don't have data plans. And you could do it in ways which you could, you could subsidize certain types of, you don't want necessarily people to be watching cat videos or TikTok videos all the time. You know, again, I apologize to people who find that really pleasurable, but you, you, could, you could subsidize bandwidth for particular usage, like, like learning materials. And you could say, if you go to this website, and this is technically feasible to do, you could differentially subsidize certain IP addresses. You could differentially search. And I think that's the way I would go about it to sort of say certain types of activities we want to make free bandwidth for. You know, we'll still have to work out the kinks on this, but at least in the beginning, we have to come to a consensus. This is, this is a critical thing for our future generations. I certainly believe it is. I don't think that's where everyone, or at least a majority of people in terms of policy are right now. To what extent does management of the quality of education systems concern economics and driving competition among teachers and schools? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting question. So in my first response, when I talked a bit about kind of ecosystems and responding at the market level, uh, one critical thing you always want to do, look, you can always design policy which promotes competition, leverages competition, or policy which undermines competition. Let me give you an example. So, you know, there are, there are lots of efforts in funding education. Right? We have, you know, multinationals, something the IFC has invested in, like, you know, chains of schools to kind of promote education. You know, if you do it in a way where you choose one particular provider and you support them, can run the risk of creating an effective monopoly, right? Because you've basically given one provider a differential edge. If you, however, provide financing in a way that is more a level playing field, so anyone who's good can access it, then you have enhanced competition. And in fact, we have a study which did something similar to this. this. This grant study that I mentioned, one nuance in that study was we did two types of provision of grants. In one case, in, in a village, we only gave money to one private school. And in another case, we gave money to all private schools. There are public schools as well. And so we have a separate study on public funding, but this one was focusing on the private sector. We find it's very interesting. When you give money to only one private school, from a ROI financial perspective, it's the best use of your money. That school is the most profitable. But the way it makes profits is by almost like stealing market from other schools. It, it puts physical facilities. It tries to grab school from other schools. But it doesn't actually improve its quality. In contrast, when we gave money to all schools in a community, 
we actually find that now you can't take the easy way out. You can't just build an extra classroom and hope more kids will come because everyone can do that. So what we find in those communities is schools actually invest in teachers and raise learning quality. And so in some sense, what they're doing is they're not kind of what we would call market stealing strategy. They do a market growing strategy, which is they grow the size of the market. And so each one of them can basically get a greater share of that bigger pie that they've made. And the bigger pie is you've improved the quality of what you're offering. And so that's the sense in which the first way of doing it, you didn't leverage competition, you actually undermined it. And the second way you actually enhanced competition. And this has real implications on how we do subsidized financial lending. So a lot of countries, especially developing countries have priority sectors they lend to. And the real thing is, it's not just you necessarily have to pick a priority sector, the density, the geography of how you lend matters as well. So if you had a choice between lending only to a few people across many spaces, that's actually worse than lending to more people in a smaller set of places where they're competing with each other. The density of lending matters. Can this economics-based approach disrupt local level focus on quality of education or has it proven to improve quality throughout villages? No, I think sometimes, look, when people say economics, often that has certain connotations to it, that you don't care about some of the non-financial aspect of things or the non-measurable aspect of things. I think presented that way obviously creates a tension. I actually don't think there's a tension. I think this way of thinking, I'm, I'm obviously an economist. I think what I'm bringing to the table over here is not necessarily a particular, I care about measure X more than measure Y, but a particular process of designing and evaluating policies, right? Which is, you know, and just to give you an idea of that process, it's like you start by saying, who are the relevant agents over here? Who are the relevant people in this ecosystem? And in education, I mentioned as parents, teachers, students, school owners, public teachers, education department officials. Think about in your environment who the salient actors are. For each of those actors, what are the resources they have? What are their preferences? What are they trying to achieve? And then what are their interactions? And that's what I would call what economics gives me, at least as a researcher. And that's, but that's a very generic approach, right? But I think it's a very powerful approach because that structure then allows you to do exactly what I said, which is identify the actors and their frictions and then try and address them. And then there's all measurement aspect, aspect to this. Look, you could do your best, but you really have to let data and evidence tell you what's happening. And so whatever intervention you come up with, whatever design you come up with, you have to test it out. And that's where methods like, you know, randomized controlled trials or other methods of causal inference become really important. So that not only are you testing things out, you have the humility to realize that you may not be right. And so you need to make potentially adjustments to what you've done based on the impact of that on things that you agree are important. In your experience, how has COVID-19 complicated the role of parents in maintaining their child's access to education, especially in the context of developing countries? Complicated as a word which seems to have negative connotations to it. I think parents should always be involved. I don't think in education, and if you think about it, it's an interesting process. Like for children's education, what is the majority of exposure they have? It's actually not to their teacher. It's to their home environment. And so it's got to be the case that that home environment, at the very least, is complementary to the educational environment they're seeing in school. Obviously, look, some people are better able to do this. If you have the financial resources and you have the skill set yourself, you're an educated person, you know, you can offer in some sense more from a sheer expertise perspective to the child at home. But I don't think we should think of it like that. I think all of us, even and someone who is poor and illiterate, 
and may think I have nothing to offer my child actually has a lot to offer their child. In fact, we have this other research I've done uh, where we looked at the impact of in very, again, in Pakistan and poor areas about if your mother was literate or not. And it was, for us, we defined literate as a very weak concept, which was just a few years of schooling. For all, and this was like, we'd done the study looking at women who are mothers now. And so they were educated in sort of the, you know, 80s, 90s. So the quality of education was not great. So these, these women were in fact, functionally not that much better than a woman who never went to school in terms of just like being able to do math or read Urdu or read English. Or, but what we still found was that their children were actually doing better. And so there's a, that raises an interesting question to say this, this, this individual, this mother who may not actually be directly capable of teaching her child because she herself doesn't have that kind of skill, even though she sort of went to school, still has her child doing better. So what's happening in these households? And what we found is in these households, those children were spending more time studying at home. And I think, again, this is where the analysis that we do becomes a bit harder because we don't have the deep, rich narrative that we would have to kind of figure out really underlying mechanisms. But the suggestive evidence is that somehow these women realized that they had agency in education. They went to enough school to say, this is something that is important. And so that importance of education was enough to reflect on their children at home doing more work. And so maybe all you were doing was when the kid came from home, maybe after some relaxing time or eating something, you said, hey, make sure you do your homework or make sure you study. I can't help you, but at least I can observe that you're doing it. And we think just that makes a difference, at least in our interpretation of that study. But that what tells you is that whether it's COVID or not COVID, the role of the parent in their child's education is critical, even if you can't necessarily teach your child, even if all you're doing is you're establishing to your child the importance of them studying when they're home or doing well in, in education. Even that could be a profoundly important effect. And that's something you see when you think of inequality in education very much as something which maybe, we may disempower parents from, from working if we say, well, if you can't really solve this math equation for your kid, then you might as well not do anything. I don't think that's the narrative we have. I think the narrative we should have is no matter what your capacity or capabilities are, everyone is possible of, of helping with their child's education by something that they're doing at home. What learnings did the COVID-19 pandemic provide that will be valuable to increase access to and quality of primary education in the future? That's a billion dollar question. I think both to your previous question, and I think it's, it's you, you, I mean, you and I were talking before this interview and your story is exactly the story of your parents deciding to commit a lot to your education by making personal sacrifices. And I think that's exactly the kind of interaction that I was referring to. COVID in many ways has made that very stark. Because we pushed education ostensibly back home, it's magnified differences. That's one way to think about it. Some people are better able to provide that kind of complementary education at home than others, especially you know, if you have the financial resources, you could set up learning groups, you could create material. So there was one way of reading this is this was terrible because it created inequalities, and it is. Another way of looking at it, and this is the more the silver lining way of looking at it, is to say everyone at some level was forced to do this to some extent or the other. We may not have a great job at it, some did a better job than others, but we were all kind of forced to kind of engage with this in the same way that you were also forced to look for material beyond just your traditional kids in school, they come back and we're done. So we have sort of willingly or unwillingly shoved a bunch of parents and a bunch of students and a bunch of educators in this world of education, which is 
delivered in a different medium, online, and education which is delivered not just only in school. And I think those two features are very important features. And if we could retain those things, I don't want to tell parents the bad news is you've got to keep helping your kid. But at some level, I do. Not the bad news. I want to say the good news is that even if we go back to normal schooling, this relationship you created with your students in their educational journey, maintain that in whatever way you can. And second, this idea that you can now draw on resources, which is beyond your physical geography, use that as well. And that's the message for parents. The message for education or educators is the same, actually, which is now that you know that these parents are in some sense engaging and then you have this wider plethora of tools, don't teach the same way. Don't think of your education again as this narrow, whatever gets delivered in school on paper is what I'm going to do, but instead realize that you might have a bigger space to play with. Uh, and I think for us who do education policy and for colleagues of mine who who teach, and I teach as well, but who teach, I'd say, the K-12 level as well, I think these are going to be really powerful lessons. My big sort of fear is that we revert back to just the kind of traditional norm of education and we don't take advantage of the insights that we have been forced to learn. I'm hoping that that's not going to happen. I think a lot of us are beginning to think along these lines. And I think if we can continue that momentum going, then, you know, we who knows, we may even come out of this pandemic not just having recovered the learning loss that we've faced, but perhaps put ourselves on a trajectory which in a few years puts us at an even higher level of learning. It's not that before pandemic, we were all hunky-dory and everything was brilliant at learning. We had big issues. And so I'm hoping we'll come up with structures that address some of those more systemic issues that we had pre-pandemic as well. Are there any responses in the education sector that you've seen that might support relief beyond education itself, especially COVID-19 mitigation, hunger relief, emergency services, and products amidst political instability and our future public health threats? I want to answer this in two ways. One, I want to answer and say, I don't think we need to. I think education is a big enough thing that if all we did was in the education response, solve the education problem, I think that's kudos to you, brilliant. So part of me is I push back against that question to say, why should we? I don't know fully whether we should expect education to do more than education. I'm happy if all they do is education because that's a big, big issue. The second response is, in many ways, when you think of, uh, this is the deeper thing of education, right? You know, a lot of the other responses we had, whether it be better health responses, you know, whether it be compliance with mask wearing or taking a vaccine or, you know, um, uh, so that's kind of on the health side, but you can imagine on the business side, uh, a lot of these responses require a populace which is able to interpret evidence, is able to uh, make informed decisions. Um, and that's a deeper question, which is, did I see, so for instance, as we were delivering messages in schools, could we have delivered messages on the importance of mask wearing? You know, is, is maybe the child who's more informed comes back to the household and says, dad, you know, I really think the behavior you're doing is unsafe or grandma, I really think you should get a vaccine because I've, I've kind of read the work on this and I understand you have some concerns. And I, I don't mean in a way that you make people who didn't get vaccines to be sort of the, the irrational set. I just mean enable a rational, sensible discourse which respects people's opinions and rights to have a, a constructive dialogue. I fundamentally think that's what education is meant to produce. And so my, my second response to your question is yes, if we deliver better education, we achieve all these other objectives. I want to be greedy in, in my response there as well. 
As we are aiming to remain more forward-looking in these conversations to learn from experiences across the world of this ongoing crisis, particularly for development, in your mind, what are the most important factors to building more resilient education systems for the future? You know, if I had to, it's hard to say you pick one thing, but if I'm forced to pick one thing, I think it would be this combination of humility and experimentation, right? This idea that this is a really, it's not easy. Look, we haven't made, in many countries, especially rich countries, we haven't changed much in our educational outcomes in the last several decades. In fact, if anything, the test scores have remained stagnant and we've put more money. And so if you think of like a productivity type measure, we've actually have declining productivity in this sector. And that's a very sobering reminder to say this, the way I described it, this sector is almost like the linchpin, the backbone of everything else. Like if we have a, a thoughtful, educated, innovative populace, you know, great things can happen. And so, and in this most important topic, we have declining productivity globally. And so the, the big question to me becomes, you, you, can, you can quibble over, we didn't do this right, or we should have done teacher training better or curriculum reform better or technology better. You can pick specific product areas and sectors, but I want to step back from that and say at a deeper level, we should recognize one, this is a really hard problem. So trivial solutions, like, I don't like people who say, oh, let's look at Finland and let's apply Finland to India. That's ridiculous. We need to create the space for people to create. So I don't also agree with the Delhi solution working in Himachal or the Himachal solution working in Dhaka or the Dhaka solution working in Nairobi. You know, um, And so what you want to go back and say, look, we need to create a situation where we allow for local experimentation to happen, for local innovation to happen knowing that these are going to be hard problems to solve. And so we'll have to come up with our own solutions and empowering people with the tools to be able to do that cost effectively. So, and these are methods where we can talk about, which is improving data collection, allowing for kind of experimental approaches, celebrating experimental approaches, uh, creating an environment where failure is not always a reason for firing someone, but failure is an opportunity to have learned something and improved. And I think if we can set up learning, and it's kind of ironic, what I'm saying is, if we can set up learning systems within educational policy and how we implement educational policy, I think we have a much better shot at actually improving one of the most fundamental things that we do in the world. Thank you again for taking the time to talk with us today. You can find more about Asim's work on CID's website and you can follow him on Twitter at AI Kwaja. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's Beyond COVID initiative at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back soon.